What did the Lord Jesus say? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Praise the Lord uh, for the word of God tonight. If you have your Bibles there, we'll turn to Daniel chapter 9 for an introductory reading. Daniel chapter 9, we're dealing with the Temple Mount, past, present and future. And I want to read from, to you from a passage. This morning we read one passage dealing with a key event that took place on the Temple Mount in the past. Tonight we read a, a passage of Scripture that deals with something that is going to take place uh, in the Tribulation Temple in the future. And we're just going to read these a very important verses from Daniel 9, dealing with Daniel's 70 week prophecy from verse 24 down to verse 27. The Bible reads, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, that's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. That's the cross, isn't it? But not for himself wasn't for himself or his sins, it was for us and our sins. And the people of the prince that shall come. So we have two princes in this passage, one who is Messiah the prince, one who is a false prince who will come. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined." And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to be here tonight and to... Uh, consider your word. We pray, Lord, now that you give us receptive hearts, uh, Lord, sharp minds to be able to take in what you'd have us to take in. Uh, Lord, help me now, Lord, as I seek to cover a lot of information, uh, Lord, to cover what needs to be covered. And we pray that you would use this lesson now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm just going to get to where we left off this morning. I'm not going to be able to do a lengthy review because we have 267 slides in total. This morning we covered roughly half of those and so I'm going to have to just keep going uh, tonight with where we left off. I would encourage you, if you missed this morning's message, to consider uh, going over it. The video should be available soon and bringing yourself up to speed. But to summarise, we're dealing with the Temple Mount, uh, no doubt the most hotly contested uh, little section of land on the face of this earth. And we went right back to the book of Genesis, didn't we? Genesis chapter 14 and how Melchizedek, king of Salem, that early name for Jerusalem there in the passage, Salem, uh, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and how Abraham paid tithes of all. And then we came to that uh, significant event in Genesis chapter 22 where uh, God instructs Abraham to offer Isaac and Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah 
and offers him there in type. Of course, then the Lord steps in and doesn't allow him to sacrifice his son. Uh, but then there is a ram caught in the thicket. And what a wonderful and beautiful picture that is of the Lord Jesus Christ who took our place, uh, who took our sin upon himself. What a wonderful picture there. The double type in the passage, the first type of the father offering his only son, the son he loved. And what a picture that is of God the Father who gave his only son, his only beloved son, his only begotten son there for us. And then, of course, the picture in the ram caught in the thicket, picturing uh, the truth of substitution of how Christ took our place uh, so that the wrath of God would not fall on us. Then we looked at that, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the story about um, David and the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, again taking place on the Temple Mount. So this is a significant location as far as biblical history is concerned, but not only biblical history, but even secular history. History. So we tried to trace the Temple Mount right through there to Herod's Temple that we read about in the New Testament, and then of course its destruction in AD 70. <coughs> Pardon me. So tonight we want to continue that theme. We got up to about AD 70 this morning. We want to go from AD 70 to the present, and then hopefully, if we've got time, show you what's going to happen here in the future. So the Temple Mount from AD 70 to the present. Now, till this day, in over 2,000 years, no temple has stood on the Temple Mount since the destruction of the Second Temple in AD 70. Is that correct? No temple has stood there. In over 2,000 years, there will be a temple rebuilt there, uh, but that will be in connection with the Antichrist and the Tribulation period. So there are some key events that transpired in reference to the Temple Mount since AD 70 that we want to note. Firstly, there was the Jewish, the second Jewish revolt in AD 132 to 135 that led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem. And the revolt was led by Shimon ben Koseba and uh, to try and re-establish control of Jerusalem and to rebuild the Temple. Remember, the Temple had been destroyed and when he liberated Jerusalem, he was called the Messiah by Rabbi Akiba ben Joseph and renamed Bar Kokhba. So it's often called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, meaning son of the star, based on the messianic prophecy of Numbers 24, 17. Yes, the Jews have had their fair share of false messiahs already. The Jews struck the coin of Bar Kokhba, depicting the temple with the Ark of the Covenant inside and the messianic star on the roof. The other side was inscribed with, quote, to the freedom of Jerusalem. The revolt was put down by the Romans with terrible brutality and the death and enslavement of more than half a million Jews. Judea was reduced to rubble with 50 fortified towns and nearly 1,000 villages razed. Jewish children were wrapped in Torah scrolls and burned alive, but it must also be said that the Jews had extended their brutality to the Christians that refused to curse Jesus and accept Kasiba's claim to Messiahship. Emperor Hadrian, who was Emperor Hadrian, uh, then built a temple of Jupiter on the Temple Mount, uh, an act of desecration there. He also built a Roman city over the ruins of Jerusalem with a north-south Cardo or main boulevard. They called it a Cardo Maximus. And he renamed the city Aelia Capitolina in honour of himself. His family name was 
Aelia and Jupiter. And he renamed the land Syria Palestinia. We still use the word Palestine today. That came from Emperor Hadrian and it's stuck to this day. They can't get rid of that Roman name. Uh, And he was trying to erase Judea and Israel from history. So we can see the development of things after uh, the destruction of AD 70. In AD 35, Constantine, this is moving on a little bit, tore down the temple of Aphrodite and built the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Just uh, winding back a bit there, uh, I believe it was Hadrian. Let me just check my... um, Yes, okay, let me just back up there. So he built a pagan temple on the Temple Mount, um, dedicated to a number of pagan gods. Um, But he also worshipped himself, Hadrian, and required worship from his subjects, that Caesars were good at worshipping themselves, just like people are today, I suppose. Selfies. Um, At the same time, a temple of Aphrodite was built over the tomb, which Christians at that time venerated as the tomb of Jesus. He outlawed the study and teaching of the Torah and made it a capital offence to practice Judaism. So he did a couple of things. He built a pagan temple on the Temple Mount. He also built a a pagan temple over what was believed to be the tomb where Jesus Christ uh, was buried and then rose again. And so uh, that was about 40 years on from the Apostle John. So it's, it's quite, there's some historical evidence that that was the location given the fact that that was common knowledge back then, fairly close to the time of Christ. Okay, there's different uh, possibilities, different conjecture, uh, different uh, uh, conjectures about this, but that was where the Christians at that time believed the temple, uh, that the tomb was, and so he built that temple over the top. So Constantine came along later, the emperor who um, really uh, welded paganism and Christianity together, really helped form the Roman Catholic Church, Um, he tore that down and built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, I've told you about many wonderful things that I was blessed to see in Israel, many beautiful things, many significant things from a biblical perspective. If you were to ask me what was the most hideous and most disgusting thing you saw in Israel, Pastor, I would say without hesitation, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, There's nothing holy about it, actually. Um, And I... As we went for a brief walk through there, it was nauseating, all the incense and uh, the shrine and just the paganism and I thought, isn't that just like men, instead of worshipping the risen Christ, they're worshipping his tomb. Inside the church of the Holy Sepulchre, as you can see, made into an idolatrous shrine. That's supposed to be the location of the tomb. Again, I don't know, but they've built this great big shrine over the top. I didn't want to line up and be hustled around by the monks. And um, I asked Brother Andrew Lewis, actually, I said, have you ever been in there? He said, I can't go in there, I'll start preaching, I'll have to stay out of there. Um, but I thought, you know, what, you know, the point is, brethren, we don't know for sure which tomb it was, but I can tell you one thing for sure, the tomb is empty. <laughs> And that's the main point, isn't it? We don't need to worship the tomb where Christ was buried. We serve a risen Christ and that's the point. I found it a little more encouraging going to the the garden tomb, which is another candidate as the possible tomb. It's quite close to Gordon's Calvary. 
the place of the skull or looks like very much the, the place of the skull. So this is another possible place. And it certainly, again, we don't know, but it certainly gives you a, an idea of the kind of tomb, at the very least, that Christ would have been buried in. The garden tomb. And the garden sees him in the background. But come inside. Cross is buried here or not, we don't know 100% for sure, but it certainly gives us a very good feel for the kind of tomb. And you can see the huge channel here for the for the tombstone that would be rolled along. That's very wide. You can get gives you a sense for the size of the stone that would have been rolled along there to cover the entrance back there. We're trying to like. I'd like to just sit here and think about Christ's resurrection. And there's this charismatic group singing there, jigging away on the tar, cracking, worship leaders cracking jokes, they're all laughing, irreverent. I thought, wow, you know, it's just... Anyway, there you go. Um, but fascinating uh, tomb there, and I put my foot into the channel there, and it was at least a foot wide, like if you put your, your, you know, put, put your sneaker into that. And um, you can imagine the huge stone rolling down through that channel. Um, but again, the point is the tomb is empty, isn't it? 8614, the Persians of the Sassanid Empire captured Jerusalem. So we're just moving along here, surveying history in reference to Jerusalem, the Temple Mount in AD 69. Hercules, emperor of the Byzantinian Empire, recaptured Jerusalem from the Persians. And then in AD 637, Jerusalem was captured by the Muslims five years after Muhammad's death. And it's pretty well been, or was, was pretty well in, uh, in Muslim hands until uh, current times, apart from a, a few, few times when the Crusaders took over. We'll talk about that. Um, and the Temple Mount was renamed at that time Haram el-Sharif, meaning the Noble Enclosure. The Al-Aqsa Mosque was built at the southern end of the Temple Mount to commemorate Muhammad's supposed night journey where he flew to heaven to receive the blessings of the prophets. Well, that's a myth and it's not true, but they, build, they built that Al-Aqsa Mosque at the southern end of the Temple Mount to commemorate that supposed event. We know that's not, not, not happened. AD 691, the Dome of the Rock Mosque was finished Caliph Umar had ordered its construction after being told that the Israelites' temple had stood there. They used to allow tourists through there until, I believe, it's the early 2000s. Now they will not allow any non-Muslim tourists to look through the Dome of the Rock. The rock inside the mosque is the top of Mount Moriah. Apparently that's where Abraham offered Isaac. Again, some of these traditions we don't know for sure, but we do know, of course, the Temple Mount is where Abraham offered Isaac. The blue-green and white tiles on the upper half of the outer walls were made in Turkey in the 1960s and replaced the original ones dating to Suleiman the Magnificent. The 24-carat gold gilding of the dome was funded by King Hussein of Jordan in 1994 and Jordan still manages and controls the Temple Mount. It's kind of like their Islamic site that they want to keep a hand on. It's the third most holy site in Islam 
The Saudis obviously have Mecca, which is the most holy site for Muslims, and the Jordanians want to have their hands on an Islamic holy site, and they have been very, they're very much in control of the Temple Mount, with some consultation with the Palestinians, but it's primarily the Jordanians. Then in AD 1099, Catholic Crusaders captured Jerusalem and established the Latin King of Jerusalem, which lasted 90 years. They were not Christian Crusaders, brethren, they were Catholic Crusaders. And they not only slaughtered many Muslims, they slaughtered a lot of the Jews. And by the way, the Jews have all that in their history. They've suffered so much, not only under Islam but have suffered so much under professing Christendom, it is a major stumbling block to giving them the gospel. They think back to the Crusades, and then they think about Christian Europe allowing six million of them to go to the gas chambers. Now, I understand that Nazis had a lot of power, but Hitler would not have had that sort of power had he not had mass cooperation from Lutheran Germany. (laughs) And uh, that's one of the dangers, unfortunately, of uh, wrong doctrine... Uh, it does have sometimes massive implications. And if you're teaching that the Jews have no part in God's program anymore, then it has very dangerous consequences. So the Knights Templar went down uh, with a certain amount of fame in history. They were uh, quite unique at that time in that they were both a religious and a military order. And they had a lot of power in the Christian world, so-called, at that time, in France and the Catholic, uh, Catholic Europe. And um, right across the, the board, they were very corrupt as well with their uh, financial dealings and that sort of thing, really developed uh, an early form of, of a banking system. And they were ferocious fighters against the Muslims to liberate the Holy Land, but as I said, they also slaughtered any Jew pretty well they could find as well. They were very anti-Semitic. In AD 1099, so back to that date again, they made the Dome of the Rock into a church, putting a cross on top and renaming it the Temple of the Lord. Now, I don't want to dabble too much in what might sound like conspiracy, but this, there's a fair bit of evidence for this. A lot of the symbolism that the Knights Templars used is now in the Masonic system a lot um, and there's some uh, evidence that perhaps when they went underground they've you know re-emerged in some of these uh, secret orders. They renamed the Al-Aqsa Mosque the Temple of Solomon and in 1119 AD the Knights Templar made this their headquarters and this drawing shows the Al-Aqsa in the time of the Crusades on the south end of the Temple Mount. So again, we're just surveying the history of the Temple Mount and these key events. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque today, looking from the Mount of Olives on the east. In AD 1187, the Muslim leader Saladin recaptured Jerusalem and banned all non-Muslim access to the Temple Mount. In AD, 1200, uh, in AD 1229, Jerusalem was reconquered by the Crusaders. There was, I believe, at least three Crusades, and the mosques on the Temple Mount were again used as churches. AD 1247, the Muslims recaptured the city and held on to it until modern times, and from 1260 to 1517, Jerusalem was ruled by the Mamluks, if I pronounced that right. And then in AD 1517, the 400-year Ottoman Empire began. 
uh, with the Muslims again controlling the Temple Mount. And a Muslim cemetery was built in front of the Eastern Gate to supposedly prevent, prevent the Jewish Messiah from coming there. Now, in reality, Jesus will not enter this gate. It has been confused with the Eastern Gate of the Millennial Temple, which will be dedicated exclusively to the Messiah, Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 44. So when we have reference to the Eastern Gate, we're not talking about the gate built by Suleiman the Magnificent, okay, um, built by the Ottoman Turks. Uh, it's actually a reference in Ezekiel to the Eastern Gate of the Millennial Temple, which will be a special gate in the millennium for the Messiah to use. So we visited this area and uh, that's some pictures, there's some pictures of the Eastern Gate, I think it's called the Golden Gate by some. In the Mount of Olives over there and here we are walking past the Eastern Gate. As you can see there's a Muslim cemetery in front of it. That's looking down into the um, Kidron Valley I believe it is down there in the middle. In the two okay those are the scriptures there that refer to the eastern gate of the millennial temple we don't have time to read them but you can go back and look at those here's a picture looking from the eastern gate back now towards the mount of olives so a lot of the photos we've been looking at have been from the mount of olives towards the temple mount this is looking from the Temple Mount, standing in front of the Eastern Gate, looking back now over here to the Mount of Olives. Okay. Now, during these centuries, small groups of Jews would travel to Jerusalem from many lands to pray at the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. In 1866, Jews became a majority in Jerusalem for the first time in 1,200 years the southern end of the Western Wall was modified to facilitate Jewish prayer, but they were still restricted to a narrow alley that ran along the wall. So it's just a narrow alley where they could slip in there and pray at the Western Wall. After the 1967 Six-Day War, they bulldozed a whole bunch of houses and cleared that whole section out and made it into the Western Plaza, uh, Western Wall Plaza, which we'll show you pictures of in a moment. Now, in 1917, the British took control of the land of Israel from the Ottoman Empire and we have a picture there of General Edmund Allenby entering Jerusalem. Now as an Australian there's an interesting piece of history here, the Australian light horse had a very important role in helping to actually liberate Jerusalem and there was a key battle at the Battle of Beersheba on October 31st 1917 where a force of 800 Australian light horse made a frontal assault against roughly 4,000 Ottoman forces who were well dug in and led by German officers. Now, the light horse would not normally do a cavalry-style charge. They would normally ride their horses close to the enemy, dismount and then attack with rifles. And so on the Turkish side, the German side, they were fully expecting the Australian forces that day to come up and dismount but then they were shocked and surprised because they, uh, they continued on with their charge and took them by surprise and were very uh, instrumental in helping to uh, clear out the enemy from Beersheba and pave the way then to, for Jerusalem being taken over by the, uh, by the Allies, by Britain. Light horse are different from cavalry in that they are mounted riflemen uh, using their horses as transportation rather than attack. 
And we could say the light horsemen were the special forces of the day. They would travel long distances and then attack unexpectedly. The 4th Light Horse Brigade attacked in late afternoon, riding more than two miles across desert in the face of artillery, rifle and machine gun fire. They rode their horses at a walk the first mile, cantered a short distance, then charged at a full gallop supported by British artillery. The defenders hesitated in mounting an aggressive response, wrongly expecting them to dismount and attack with rifles. An eyewitness, a Lieutenant Colonel R. Preston, describes the scene in these words. In front, the long lines of cavalry cavalry swept forward at racing speed, half obscured in clouds of reddish dust. Amid the deafening noise all around, they seemed to move silently like some splendid swift machine. Over the Turks they went, leaping the two lines of deep trenches and dismounting on the further side, flung themselves into the trenches with the bayonet. It was very brutal, close quarter fighting. And it's considered to be the last successful cavalry charge in military history. That marked the end of cavalry warfare, but the dawn of air warfare. Here's a short scene, a reenactment of this cavalry charge, and I've selected a scene that doesn't have too much shooting in it for the children. history there and uh, the Jews don't forget that either they talk about that they know about the fact that the Australians helped uh, to liberate the, their land and uh, the tour guide talked about that with us in the bus as we passed Beersheba I think some of our American brethren were scratching their heads why America wasn't the hero in the story but um, <laughs> here goes the Australians and the British that uh, were the heroes there on that day the victory at Beersheba opened because the Americans are the greatest, you've got to remember that. And um, No, but we're very thankful, by the way, for the Americans and all that they did too. And my grandma was very big on that. She uh, said if it wasn't for the Americans, we'd probably be all speaking Japanese right now. But um, anyway, the Australians were, were used, of the, used of God and God's providence there to help uh, play a pivotal role in liberating um, Jerusalem because it opened the way to Jerusalem and Damascus and led to the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Jerusalem surrendered to the British a little over one month later, on December 9th, 1917. And there's a somewhat humorous little story that's told that that morning the mayor of Jerusalem tried to surrender to a British private named Merck, a cook who had been sent to the village of Lifter to find some eggs for breakfast, and he tried to surrender him, and Private Merck replied, "'I don't want your city, I want some eggs for my officers.'" Maybe he was Scottish. Um, There's a picture there of the surrender to British officers and of course it hit the newspapers back then. Jerusalem is rescued by British after 63 years of Muslim rule. And look at the headline here, great rejoicing in the Christian world. What did I say? 
673, thank you. It's good to see some people can read in the auditorium. On December 11th, General Allenby entered the city through the Jaffa Gate on foot. He did it as a sign of respect to Jesus Christ. He was a God-fearing man, read his Bible. And he said, it does not behoove me, a Christian, to enter the city of my Messiah mounted when he walked. And that's the footage of that historic moment. Now, sadly, Jews were forbidden access to the Temple Mount during the British mandate. And if you study history, the British... When don't really show up in good light with how they treated the Jews. They allowed the Arabs to arm themselves but denied the Jews the same ability. They were very hard on the Jews because politically at that time they were more concerned about Arab oil than they were about the Holocaust survivors. And uh, terrible, some of the things that were done by the British to the, to, to the Jews. And I think that marked the end of the British Empire because God has said, I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you and Britain's just gone down ever since then her treatment of the Jews God it's interesting strange sort of paradox on the one hand God used Britain in many ways to help the Jews get back in the land but then the Jew uh, the British were on the whole very um, unjust in the way they treated treated a lot of the Jews and the Britain British Empire's never been the same after that whereas God has greatly blessed America and I believe that's because largely America has been the Jews' greatest friend really since they've entered the land and been a huge help to them. So if we as a nation, if we are, I'm very disappointed by the way that our current government has reversed the decision to recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now if we as a nation start getting caught up in this anti-Israel sentiment, we're going down. <laughs> that's all there is to it. We're going down. God will not allow that, us to get away with that. In 1931, the British gave the Temple Mount to the Islamic Trust called the Waqf, I don't know how that's pronounced, does anybody know? Whatever, you've got a wok at home you cook with. Um, and in 1948, May, May 14th, 1948, the new state of Israel was declared. So the British mandate ended, they marched out and the Jews under Ben-Gurion, declared uh, their statehood. Here's some old um, footage of that, old newsreel. 1948, David Ben-Gurion arrived at the Tel Aviv Museum building. His entire life had been directed towards this very moment. This right is the natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations, in their own sovereign state, which would open the gates of the homeland wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people the status of a fully privileged member of the Committee of Nations. Accordingly, we members of the National Executive, representatives of the Jewish community of Eretz Israel and of the Zionist movement, are here assembled on the day of the termination of the British mandate over Eretz Israel. And by virtue of our natural and historic right, and the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, 
here declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel to be known as the State of Israel. Counting that time later, Ben-Gurion said that while it was a joyous occasion, uh, he also felt very heavy-hearted because he knew that very soon those young people who were rejoicing the streets would be uh, fighting and losing their lives to protect their new state. And you forget as well that this was just after the Holocaust, 1948, several years after World War II, and a lot of the Jews coming back into Israel were Holocaust survivors uh, that escaped uh, Hitler's um, ovens in Europe and were coming back because they had nowhere to go. And many of them arrived weeping uh, on those ships, getting out, kissing the ground, and pretty well got handed rifles very soon after landing, many of them, and had to go to fight for their country. Don't, under, don't uh, overlook the significance of what happened there with Israel back in the land because what we see there is the fulfilment of the first stage of Ezekiel's prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's exactly what we see. It's amazing in our time that Israel is back in the land. That is an amazing fulfilment of prophecy. Now, she does not yet have spiritual life but she's back in the land. Ezekiel 37, 7-8, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. It's two stages of this prophecy. We see Israel coming back, but she has no life yet, but God is still in the future going to breathe spiritual life into Israel, Romans 11 talks about that, that there's coming a day when all Israel shall be saved. Now, if you're not sure about whether Ezekiel 37 is dealing with Israel, verse 11 makes that very clear. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Okay, it's nothing to do with the church and the church coming together. Ezekiel 37 is a prophecy to do with Israel and it's gathering back into the land. That's another whole subject. So in 1948, Jews in Rome marched under the arch of Titus to signify that they were returning from captivity. Remember, Titus was the one who destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews. So on that historic occasion, they marched under that arch of Titus as a sign of their victory. Now, though the Jews won the war of independence against overwhelmingly superior Muslim forces, they did not gain control of the Temple Mount. And under Jordanian control, over the next 19 years, 58 Jewish synagogues were destroyed in uh, Jerusalem. They were not able to get a hold of Jerusalem in the War of Independence. That came later in the Six-Day War. Jewish sites were desecrated and the Western Wall was turned into a garbage dump. So from 1948 to 1967, they weren't even allowed to pray at the Western Wall. Then came the 1967 Six-Day War where Israel's enemies were determined to drive Israel into the sea. They were determined to perpetrate another terrible holocaust and in six days Israel had control of the skies and basically uh, the US was you know, trying to get them to broker a ceasefire to, 
keep the Arabs happy. So on June 7th, 1967, Israel recaptured the old city and the Temple Mount, regaining control for the first time in 1,897 years. Colonel Motagur, a paratrooper, announced in Hebrew, the Temple Mount is in our hands. I repeat, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Lieutenant Uzi Ilam blew the shofar and soldiers sang Jerusalem of gold and recited the... Um, some sort of blessing there. I'm not going to try and pronounce that. Chief Rabbi of Israel's Defence Forces, Shlomo, meaning Solomon Garan, arrived at the Western Wall. He later became the Chief Rabbi. He blew the shofar and announced, we have taken the city of God and we are entering the Messianic era for the Jewish people. But in reality, their rejoicing to a degree was to be short-lived because uh, only shortly... Later on June 17th, 1967, in an attempt to appease the Muslims and foster inter-religious harmony, Israel's Defence Minister Moshe Dayan, a secular Jew and a profane man with no love for God's word, returned control of the Temple Mount to the Palestinian Waqf. And the Israeli Knesset approved this decision. Dayan said in his autobiography that Jews should, quote, view the Temple Mount as a historic site relating to past memory. And it's the same organisation that has managed the Temple Mount since the Muslims overthrew the Crusaders in 1187. Not surprisingly, they have refused to allow Jews to worship on their own mount. In fact, they have proclaimed the entire area a mosque. So you've got this interesting mix in Israel, some very religious, the ultra-Orthodox, all the way through to very, even quite left-wing and secular people. Moshe Dion was a pragmatist. And he uh, didn't have much uh, interest in God. He was interested in the ladies. Um, but he was a great uh, defence minister and a, and a very good military man who helped Israel at that time. Since 1967, Jews have been allowed to pray at the Temple Mount's Western Wall. And we were able to visit there. And here's a photo of that Western Wall with different people praying there. And there are two sections. There's a woman's section and a women's section and a men's section with a partition down the middle. Yes, they still know the difference between male and female there. I'm standing here at the western wall, and this is looking at the women's section. You'll notice that there's a wall over there dividing the area. So this is the women's, the women's section here, and that's the men's section over there, which I'll go and take a look at in a moment. And we also saw quite a few of the bar mitzvahs, which is, I think, when a, when a boy turns 13, they have the bar mitzvah, and the female relatives have to stand on that side of the wall and look over the side of the wall during that. Down from where I was standing before, again, there's that partition going down the middle. So the, woman's, the, the women's section's on the other side there, and I'm now standing looking at the men's section of the wall. And... Uh, Lots of people praying over there in their prayer shawls and various things. They've got all sorts of tables there with prayer books. You can see a table there for worshippers with Jewish prayer books and other paraphernalia. And then, let's see if I can show you a picture here um, where I'm going to go next. So here's the Western Wall here, and I'm about to take you under here. 
Okay, through there it goes because it's that that wall continues right along. We eventually went through the western wall tunnels, but there's like a um, an uh, undercover area in here where a lot of people pray at the wall in there as well. Standing here. here. Okay, so this is walking to that section there. Someone asked me this morning about, see what's on that man's head there? I said, what's that? That's the phylactery. They have these phylacteries with portions of scripture in them. Um, and this, um, there's Pastor Dan. Um, there's my prayer cap. Um, there's the, this big uh, cabinet is called the Ark and they have all sorts of Torah scrolls and things in there. I bought that from the Temple Institute, it says Jerusalem on it. And um, you can buy them just about anywhere. So, But you have to wear one to go into that Western Wall area or you'll be in trouble. There's a scroll with the scriptures, I forget which book it is. Let's see how it's turned there. And as I mentioned, there's the the big um, cabinets where they store the Torah scrolls. We saw large groups of soldiers on the Temple Mount coming down to tour the Temple Mount, probably also to keep an eye on things. They're quite happy to be photographed. Some of these guys uh, enjoyed all the attention, I think. And as I mentioned, we went along the Western Wall Tunnels um, then after that and viewed some of these massive foundation stones and it's a little bit hard to convey this in the picture, but this is a, like a, a cutaway showing you right down to bedrock. So that's looking from the top down. Um, go along a walkway there and you can look down right down to the, to, the, to the foundations. It doesn't really convey it that great in that picture, but it's really very deep. It just shows how far down the, um, those retaining walls Herod built uh, went down. And as I mentioned, some of the massive stones... Uh, there on that retaining wall weigh as much as two jumbo jets and this one here is one of those. It just goes on and on. It's huge. <clears throat> Went down looking at the foundations of the temple wall that Herod built. Massive, massive stones. And then this is walking through more of that tunnel section. See these and more stones, but they're just yeah. Okay, hitting the stone. <laughs> so again, you see those massive sort of similar to those ones we saw this morning, the, the cornerstones. So it looks like we're down to big rock foundation stones. 
Now, someone asked me earlier about how they used to transport those huge stones. This was a little explanatory video that they showed us of how uh, they would have transported those huge stones back then. So it's a video of a video, so the quality is not fantastic, but... So the Temple Mount. Um, I just want to show you, this is not my footage, some drone footage off of iStock, but when we visited the um, Temple Mount, just to give you a bit of a sense for how we're moving here with the pictures, we actually came up from this side here. So Al-Aqsa Mosque is down over this side here. And we came up the flight of stairs here and we walked around in this direction back out that way. So I'll show you some video clips and it's basically us moving around the Dome of the Rock in that kind of direction. Okay. So there's some pictures there taken in front of the Dome of the Rock. Paul was there too, don't worry. Um, I don't know, it must be just, we just sort of slotted back into the, the brother thing, I think. Um, wasn't intentional. Further around the side now. Now, what I found particularly interesting, uh, you, people say, well, how on earth are the Muslims going to allow the Dome of the Rock to be destroyed to build the temple? I think a very plausible possibility is that the temple could be built next to it. There's a huge amount of space through here on this side. Um, again, it's a possibility. We don't know for sure. We know that if God's word says it's going to be built, it will be built, okay? Um, that we know. But it would be very interesting um, in an ecumenical age for the Antichrist to organise such a thing. 
So here's another little video about that. Space to the side of the Dome of the Rock here where a temple could potentially be built. And just looking back over here, apparently this little um, dome here stands over the spot where some claim the original temple actually was. And um, I have to ask him for the name of the book, but apparently there was a man who did a lot of research and showed uh, archaeolo archaeological evidence as well that this was actually the site here of the original temple, not over there where the Dome of the Rock is. Um, so just interesting, you could see how the Antichrist could broker a peace deal and have the temple reconstructed uh, right here next to the um, Temple Mount, uh, the, next to the Dome of the Rock, sorry. Now our tour guide was not a Bible believer and not a Christian and he obviously knew about this Christian view of the temple being rebuilt on the Temple Mount and he said, you know, this idea of it getting built next to the Dome of the Rock, he said, never happen. It'd be World War Three. And I thought, well, he's right. It would be World War Three unless you introduce a man backed with the power of Satan. Okay? Antichrist, backed with the power of Satan, um, comes as a man of peace, could easily um, broker that deal. And it's not just an idea that Christians have. There are prominent rabbis who want the temple rebuilt who are putting forward this idea that we don't need to remove the dome of the rock that the temple can just sit alongside it interesting in revelation chapter 11 it does say but the court which is without the temple leave it out leave out and measure it not for it is given under the gentiles and many bible students of prophecy have looked at that and we're looking there in revelation 11 clearly at the tribulation temple the apostle john is told to measure it in the tribulation period there so um, it's just interesting, the wording of Revelation, that it seems that there's still a space left uh, in, with the Tribulation Temple for the Gentiles, and uh, many Bible prophecy students have seen this as a real possibility, that um, it's a reference to the fact that the uh, Gentiles will still have some control of the Temple Mount, but then there will be the, um, uh, the, the reconstructed Temple there as well. And that really leads us into our final point tonight on the future Temple Mount, the Temple Mount, pardon me, and the future Tribulation Temple. And obviously we don't have time to preach a whole series on Bible prophecy tonight, but let me just again give you uh, some, a brief overview there and some thoughts. The future Tribulation Temple is mentioned in a number of key Bible passages, such as Daniel chapter 9, we read that tonight. And we know that because it refers to the Antichrist's abomination of desolation uh, that takes place halfway through that last week. And understand the Hebrew word there is the word seven. It's a, a week of seven years, not seven days. And the book of Revelation ties in with that. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks about this, how that the Antichrist will sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Matthew 24, of course, speaks the abomination of desolation. Mark chapter 13, and of course, we have the Apostle John measuring this temple in Revelation chapter 11. Now, these events are in the future, but what we see today is the stage being set for the fulfillment of those prophecies in a breathtaking way. In 1967, the Temple Mount Faithful was, was established with the goal to rebuild the temple. It was founded by Gershon Salomon, one of the soldiers who captured the Temple Mount. So we're looking now at how things are beginning to shape up for, these, for the end times. 
In the 1990s, Muslims invented the temple denial myth, claiming the Jewish temple never existed in Jerusalem. For example, there we have the uh, uh, official uh, Taisir Tamimi claiming that Israel never had a presence on the Temple Mount. There he is with the Pope. Catholics never have been much friend, really friends of the Jews, have they? Or at least the Catholic system, I should say. Um, uh, he said this, this um, Muslim cleric, about these so-called two temples, they never existed. Certainly not at the Haram al-Sharif. So that's just a denial of history. Um, Israel started since 1967 making archaeological digs to show Jewish signs to prove the relationship between Judaism and the city. And they found, um, oh, this is what he was saying, and they found nothing, he says. There's no Jewish connection to Israel before the Jews invaded in the 1880s. So that's his claim. Uh, It's a complete bogus claim. Now, I have a little interesting document to show you here that Sister Kate Quigley shared with me, which disproves that claim, and uh, her husband was able to get hold of a rare copy of a um, tourist guide, I believe it is, a guide to the Temple Mount. And what is very interesting is this was published by the Supreme Muslim Council, and you'll notice the date there is 1925. Um, and I believe now uh, BiblePlaces.com holds the, uh, the copyright to the images and um, has them on their website. But it disproves, in fact, apparently the Muslims are very unhappy about these kind of documents being found. There's not many of them around because it actually shows from an Islamic source, an authentic Islamic source, that they themselves back then in 1925 acknowledged that Solomon's temple was on that temple mount. So very interesting, they're trying to deny that now and they're trying to keep these kind of things censored. But in this very document, which is produced by the Islamic authorities of the day in 1925, it says here, its identity with the site of Solomon's temple is beyond dispute. This too is the spot according to the universal belief on which David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So it actually disproves what they're claiming now from their own sources, a 1925 guide to the Temple Mount written by Muslims and endorsed and produced by the Supreme Islamic Council. So they're trying to keep this kind of information um, you know, hidden because they don't want the Jews having any claim to the Temple Mount. And in 1996, they began to even destroy antiquities from the Temple Mount in an effort to erase Jewish history. Uh, They basically got approval from the Israel government to make an emergency exit um, from one of their mosques there, but then they used that as a pretense to remove tens of thousands of square feet of archaeologically rich soil, and any stones with decorations or Hebrew inscriptions were cut up to obliterate the markings, and the stones were fashioned into new building material, trying to uh, remove any evidence from the archaeological soil there under the Temple Mount that they have any claim that the Jews have any history there. Well, the Jews, they started to sift through the debris and uh, they, apparently the dirt was dumped in the Kidron Valley and uh, teams of Israelis have been sifting through the debris there and have found treasures such as a clay seal dating to the Temple era and I believe that it may have had a Hebrew inscription on it from memory from reading about that. So they're starting to find things despite the... Um, the efforts of of the Muslims to erase their history there. 
In 2005, the Jewish Sanhedrin was re-established for the first time in 1,600 years. And then we have the Temple Institute that was founded. Um, let me see, I think I had that in my notes here when that was founded in 1987. And the Temple Institute is actively involved in promoting the construction of the Third Temple. And they spent large sums of money in preparing the articles for the Third Temple. And our tour of the Temple Institute was most enlightening from a Bible prophecy standpoint. Very professionally run tour. Uh, You go room by room, you walk into the first room, it's like an audio sight and sound tour. And you sit in theatre-style uh, theater, theater sort of benches um, in a section and they dim the lights and then they have a whole series of exhibits. They have the uh, various articles they've made for the temple. So, for example, this, we saw that when we were there, priest's garments. Um, these are not my photos. They were strictly told us we we're not allowed to take any photos or videos. Brother Cloud must have got some special permission to photograph some of these objects I noticed he hasn't photographed all of them, so they obviously allowed him to photograph some of them, and we've got some of these pictures. Um, but it was very interesting. So they'd have glass cabinets with various um, uh, instruments for the temple and other things, and they also had some very beautiful big um, uh, oil paintings and that sort of thing uh, depicting various biblical scenes. They mixed some Talmudic tradition into things as well, of course, and you basically sit there and then they, they'll shine a light on the first exhibit and explain it. And they go around and basically explain what's in the room. Then they give you a few minutes to walk around and look at the objects and then you move to the next room and you sort of just go through like that. And it was most interesting to see uh, the various things that they have made in preparation for the temple. The Jews want their temple. And uh, the Antichrist is going to give it to them but it'll come at a great cost, of course. The high priest's, the high priest's garments, including the golden crown, costing 30000 I actually found it quite interesting, just from the perspective of understanding the tabernacle and the temple, the Old Testament temple a little bit more. Obviously, we know these things are shaping up for the future, but it was very interesting from that perspective as well. Um, and they've tried to make them as best they can to biblical specifications uh, the laver has definitely got some modern technology in it. I think they can have heated water in the laver and it's got some modern taps on it, so that's definitely not according to biblical specifications. But, um, and they are basing it on certain uh, Jewish history and tradition as well, but they've tried to be as accurate as they can. Yeah, they have the, blessed pra- the breastplate with the gems engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the brass laver and um, it's got some... I don't know it's in this picture, but they've got taps on it and apparently it's got some sort of internal heater or something. The incense altar, we saw that, made to biblical specifications. Table of showbread. <coughs> Ark of the Covenant, that's just a model of it. And they make a claim in the, they sort of have a, it's like the grand finale with the curtains opening and the, grand, and the Ark of the Covenant and they say that the Ark of the Covenant, the location of the Ark of the Covenant is known to them. Again, claim, all sorts of claims, Uh, who knows. Harps, silver trumpets, they've made the menorah out of gold worth about 2.5 million and we saw that as well. It's it's outside, it's, it's not too far from the Western Wall Plaza across from the Temple Mount. 
In 2015, they began practicing for Levitical sacrifices. We know that the Tribulation Temple will be built during the reign of Antichrist under the false peace program of the Antichrist. This temple is measured by the Apostle John in Revelation 11 and it it was given me a reed like unto a rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So that's right, if you understand the book of Revelation, it's it's in the tribulation period and there is a temple there that the Apostle John uh, measures. So we know the temple is going to be rebuilt. Now some misguided Christians are actually trying to fund the Temple Institute. You're funding the Antichrist Temple. Um, you know, let God's plan come to pass, but don't fund a temple that's not going to have God's blessing on it. Because they sh- the, the Jewish people need to see that Christ has already come. They don't need, they don't need a temple, they need the Lord Jesus and uh, His forgiveness. Daniel 9, we talked about that, and he shall confirm this referring to Antichrist, the covenant with many for one week, that's that seven-year period, and in the midst of the week. So halfway through, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the Antichrist comes as a man of peace, he signs a deal He makes a covenant with Israel for a seven-year period, but halfway through, he shows his true colours and he desecrates the temple, setting up uh, an idolatrous image there and proclaiming himself as God and the Jews are going to realise he's not their Messiah. And that's where Christ's instructions in the Olivet Discourse are not to the church, let him that readeth understand. It's like if you're a Jew reading Christ's instruction... At that time, his instructions are, don't even go back to your house to gather your anything. You are to flee to the mountain and God is going to provide supernatural protection for the godly Jewish remnant at that time, which seems to indicate that at least some of the Jews have been saved by then, right? By the halfway point, okay? If not all of them or most of them. So um, that's the instructions. If you can understand, read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25, and Mark 13, and understand its Jewish context and it'll open it, up, open it up to you. So just to give you, while we're thinking about prophecy, let's look at this little chart here that's very useful. Uh, we are currently in the church age here, we are awaiting the rapture of the church. We're not looking for the tribulation, are we? We're looking for the translation. And then that seven-year period of tribulation is going to follow and uh, that'll be a time of unprecedented catastrophe on the, in the world. It's described in Revelation uh, chapter 6 through to 18, all the, uh, the judgments there, the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, uh, the trumpet judgments and so on. And then Christ comes and sets up the 1,000-year reign to uh, just zoom in a little bit on the tribulation period, looking at this section here. It's broken into the two parts of three and a half weeks. We have the seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week first three and a half years and then we have the abomination of desolation taking place halfway through the tribulation. So when he signs a seven-year peace pact with Israel as described in Daniel 9.27, the world will rejoice believing that the new age has arrived with global peace and blessing. The Middle East crisis will appear to have been solved but the Antichrist will occupy this temple 2 Thessalonians 2.4, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So after that first three and a half years, 
the Antichrist will show his true nature. The end of the tribulation, Christ will return in power and glory to rule and reign. What a day that will be. Matthew 24, 29, and immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken and we needed to go on there and say and then shall appear the a sign there of the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. After tribulation, a millennial temple will be built in Jerusalem and it's described in the book of Ezekiel in great length. Uh, Some of the Psalms speak prophetically of the millennial temple and it's going to be a glorious place and and centre of worship for the millennium after Christ's return. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came, says Ezekiel, from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Remember in Ezekiel how the glory of God left the first temple? It's never come back. The glory of God has never come back to a temple since then. It'll only happen there in the millennial temple where God's glory will return. That's another huge study. And our purpose today has been just to survey these things and consider the Temple Mount. So we could say, even so come Lord Jesus, couldn't we, tonight? And uh, look forward to his coming. So the Temple Mount passed, biblical history, secular history all the way through, present, Temple Mount future. Tribulation Temple, Antichrist. Millennial Temple, Jesus Christ after the tribulation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and for the opportunity to consider these things. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word and to have hearts filled with hope and faith for the future, looking forward to your coming, uh, to your return. So we just uh, look to you now. We do pray tonight, Lord, for the salvation of Israel, the the Jewish people who are so blind uh, to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Lord, we know that you do love them and uh, they're your chosen people. We pray that you would draw them to salvation. Bless people like Andrew Lewis and others who seek to bring the truth of Christ as the Messiah to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.